welcome to the history of Vikings. Inherited through the line of the berserker Angantyr and his war-loving daughter Havor, the ever-lethal shining sword Tyrfing and its changes of hands frame the uncanny story of the saga of Havor and Hadric. A second heroic saga, Hrolf Kraki and his champions, recounts the daring deeds of the members and entourage of the ancient Danish house of Skjuldung, passed down orally in pre-Christian Norse times, then transmitted in writing in medieval Iceland. Two unique Old Norse sagas are the topic of our conversation today. The excerpt I just read was from that of a new book entitled Two Sagas of Mythical Heroes, Hervor and Hadrek and Hrolf Kraki and His Champions, by returning guest Dr. Jackson Crawford. Dr. Crawford is an Old Norse specialist and translator. In the description of this episode, you will find links to Dr. Crawford's splendid translations of The Poetic Edda and The Saga of the Volsungs, as well as his book, The Wanderer's Havamal. Today's episode is sponsored by Norse Tradesmen, a company that provides premium Norse replicas, such as genuine drinking horns and functional weapons, carefully handcrafted using only the finest natural materials. Norse Tradesmen offers a vast selection of historical replicas, including their bearded battle axe, battle-ready swords, genuine oxhorn tankards, drinking horns, and much more, all drawn from historical sources rooted in Viking history and mythology. And now, get your very own customized horn tankard. Submit your own text to be engraved by hand right here in the USA by Norse Tradesman's in-house Norse historian. Tankards and ale horns, linked to the Norse traditions of family and fellowship, can be purchased and shipped within one day via their website, norsetradesman.com. Be sure to follow the link in the description of this episode. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Jackson Crawford. Dr. Jackson Crawford, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It is such a pleasure to have you back as a recurring guest, a friend of the show here on the History of Vikings. Dr. Crawford, your new book, Two Sagas of Mythical Heroes, Hervor and Hadric and Hrolf Kraki and his champion, has been eagerly awaited by listeners of this podcast. The two sagas of the book are enthralling tales encompassing the distinguishable motifs appearing in other sagas discussed on this podcast, not to mention an illustrious cast of characters all its own. Well, before we get into the meat and origin of these sagas, tell us, what spurred your ambition to translate these sagas? You know, why these sagas? I mean, from the Poetic Edda and Havamal to the Saga of the Volsungs, and more, you've worked with some very interesting pieces of Old Norse literature over the last few years. And I'm curious, why these sagas is your most recent project? Well, the uh, first translation that I had published with Hackett Publishing Company was, of course, as you alluded to, the Poetic Edda. And then following that, I thought that the saga of the Volsungs deserved uh, translation into modern English. In, in my own style, combining what I like to think of as 
more faithfulness to the content of the text with a uh, language that also doesn't ever feel old-fashioned. And there wasn't necessarily immediately a clear third set of translations to do after that. I talked about several options with my publisher. One possibility, of course, that we considered for the third translation was the prose edda. But I, while I do actually have plans with Hackett to eventually translate the prose edda, I also think that there's not the same gap there because there is a good accessible uh, modern English translation by Anthony Falks. So I don't feel like there's as, as much necessity to like rush that out there. So in terms of mythical material, the next most important things that I thought lacked solid modern English translations were some of the sagas of mythical heroes. And we tossed around a few ideas for exactly which ones would go into this book. You know, with the Volsungs and, and the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok, which are in the second book, Ragnar Lothbrok is actually a sequel to the saga of the Volsungs, and it's written that way. It was harder to find sagas that had the same kind of interlinked plots. Of course, there are the, the Hrafnista sagas, which concluded the saga of Eroad, but those are a little bit marginal to the mythology. What I decided to do eventually was these two sagas that both really prominently feature the gods, and especially Odin, as uh, interfering characters in our heroes' lives, much like in the saga of the Volsungs. And then also, these two sagas, much like Volsungs, are based on very ancient material that probably goes back to the so-called Migration Age, uh, where we find references to the characters in these sagas as far afield as places like England and Germany. They're not just restricted to Scandinavia. These are old heroes of the Germanic-speaking peoples. So it seemed like a pretty natural idea once uh, we hit on it. And so I began translating these sagas in 2017, actually before Volsungs was even published. And I had largely finished it, and it was already sort of starting to glide toward publication in early 2019 when we came up with the idea for The Wanderer's Hobbamall. And my editor and I were both so excited about it <laughs> that we sort of dropped the sagas and and finished The Wanderer's Hobbamall project. So that took about a year. And then when we were ready to hit two sagas again, all of a sudden, COVID pretty much shut down the publishing industry. So it's a little bit funny to me. This book is is sequentially, in a sense, in terms of effort, my third book, but being published as the fourth. But it's, it's it still works. It's like we've got Edda Saga, Edda Saga order now. Indeed, indeed. Well, that is a fascinating story, Dr. Crawford. I, I find this interesting because it has something to do with the saga of the Volsungs, a saga very familiar to listeners of this podcast and students of, you know, Old Norse sagas. What is this notion of like the migration period and, you know, something that predates certainly the Viking Age and has something to do with the larger Germanic Nordic culture as opposed to just strictly that which lived in Iceland and Scandinavia? Why is that significant when we talk about these two mythical sagas? And if it isn't significant, what should we bear in mind? What's interesting about that? Okay, well, let's get some timeline basics established then. 
if we look at certain inscriptions in the oldest form of the runes, the Elder Futhark, like the Galahus horn, or horns, but there's only an inscription on one of them, from about uh, the 8300s, we actually have a really hard time saying whether it is in a early form of Old Norse, Proto-Norse, or if it could be an early form of a West Germanic language, even, even English, and actually where it's located could well be Proto-English. These languages were just that close. And of course, if we look at the fairly sparse runic material from that period and compare it to the translation from about the same time of the Bible into Gothic, we also see a very similar language there. So in the first half of the first millennium AD, all of the speakers of Germanic languages were much closer to one language community. And stories not only had been passed on into all of these different groups from the ancestor culture they were splitting off from and, and hadn't actually split off from uh, very long ago at this point, but stories were also being transmitted from place to place. And so particularly the Goths and their interactions with the Roman Empire, with the Huns and other world historical figures in the first half of the first millennium AD, many of their stories came back to places like Scandinavia, Germany, and even England, where very closely related languages were spoken. And then in subsequent centuries, as these communities and their languages drifted apart, these stories also drifted apart, but retained, in many cases, common casts of characters, and if not always complete shared plots, often shared motifs and shared scenes. So, of course, Volsungs is the most famous example of that, where we have complete, or, you know, when I say complete, at least long, German version of the Volsung story in the Nibelungenlied. We have hints about the English version of the story in Beowulf and one of the digressions there. And of course, we have the saga of the Volsungs and many poems about the Volsungs and the Poetic Edda from Scandinavia. But the Volsungs were not the only heroes spoken of in those early days when the Germanic language communities were close to one another. There were also other mythical heroes. Surely some of them we'll never know about or, or only know his names. But some of them are also the heroes in these two sagas in this new book. That is fascinating. And I'm so excited to, I mean, there's just so much we could get into. I fear we won't have time to even, you know, skim the surface, perhaps, of everything these sagas have to offer a modern readership. But one thing that I find very interesting are the illustrious characters featured in these two sagas. I mean, you know, the sort of war loving Hervor. And the berserker Agentir, people get very excited when we talk about berserkers and any hint of a mythical or historical significance they had to the pre-Christian Scandinavians. Perhaps would you start, Dr. Jackson Crawford, by introducing us to some of your favorite characters featured in these sagas? Well, sure. And, and I'll start with one who makes a point about my... Uh... My point from your last question about the continuity from earlier times, the saga of Rolf Kraki contains many of the same seeds that we find in Beowulf, 
only they've, you know, grown up in different soil, as it were. So we have, of course, famously in Beowulf, the king Hrothgar of Denmark. Now, his Norse name is Hroar, and Hroar is uh, a character in the saga of uh, Hrothgaki. In fact, and I always forget this because I have family tree uh, blindness or something. Uh, I have to look at this on the actual family tree because I always forget who's the uncle and who's the nephew. Hroar is the uncle of Hrolfkraki, who is the king of Denmark in the saga of Hrolfkraki. And Hrolfkraki, so Hrolf in Old English is Hrolf. So the nephew Hrolf is mentioned in Beowulf, just as the uncle Hroar or Hrothgar is mentioned in the saga of Hrolfkraki. So in a, in a way, the saga of Hrolfkraki is actually set up as almost like a sequel to Beowulf, but, you know, from Scandinavia instead of from England. It's, it's funny because the king in each the uncle or nephew is a completely secondary character, the other country, right? So Hrothgar is, is a big king in, in Beowulf, but then Hrothulf isn't a big character at all in Beowulf. But then Hrothkraki is a big character in, obviously, the saga of Hrothkraki. But Hrothgar, his uncle Hroar, is just a minor character early on. Uh, so that's kind of funny. They're mirror images in terms of those uh, Danish king characters. But then we also have the character of Bolthvar Bjarki in the saga of Kraki, who is one of the champions from the title of the saga of Kraki and his champions. Bolthvar Bjarki is the son of a bear, uh, quite literally his dad is a bear, the animal, who comes down from Norway after spending some time in uh, Swedish Jutland, or what in Old English, of course, is Jutland, Geetland, comes to Denmark, comes to the hall of the king of Denmark, who is, of course, in this case, Hrolf, the nephew of Hrothgar, and has to face a monster that none of the Danes are brave enough to tackle on their own uh, one night while he is staying in uh, their hall. Now, if that doesn't sound like Beowulf, I don't know what does. Not only does Beowulf have a name that probably means bear, Right, bee wolf, Beowulf being the wolf that eats honey, the wolf from the perspective of bees. But he also comes from Jaitland, the same place both Arbiarchy departs from. Comes to the hall of the Danish king, although in this case, in his case, the uncle, Hrothgar, and single handedly defeats a monster in the Danish king's hall that none of the Danes can defeat. There is clearly some common root shared between these stories. But they're obviously not exactly the same either. Both Barbiarchy doesn't wrestle the animal the same way. There isn't the arm that he pulls off. He never goes and fights its mom. But clearly, certain shared elements have uh, matured differently in England and Scandinavia, respectively, over the subsequent centuries. But they, they clearly come from one seed story, if you will. And I think that's pretty cool. Very interesting. That's very interesting. Well, and I realize this could be an entirely different podcast episode, but at what point does the illustrious berserker Angantyr enter this scene? And then could you also, for our listenership, Dr. Crawford, and I apologize for the loaded question, as I understand its ambiguity, but 
Who are these berserks, these berserkers that we do read of in Old Norse literature? Are they shamanistic, spiritual characters? Are they simply, you know, frenzied, frothing at the mouth warriors, perhaps a little exaggerated in, you know, Old Norse literature? Who are these berserks? And if you would introduce us to Angantyr. Sure. So Angantyr is from the other saga, the saga of Herborn Haithreg. And he is a, uh, a berserker. He has 11 brothers who are also berserkers. And they dominate the action in the first few chapters of the saga. Now, berserker is a really kind of vexed term. But if we strip away some of the popular media associations with it, we can state some basic facts. One thing about the name berserker that has caused a lot of speculation is uh, it appears to mean something like bear shirt, right? Serker, shirt, right. and then bear, B-E-R, that is both the root for bear, the animal, but also the form that uh, the adjective bear, B-A-R-E, like naked, takes in Old Norse. So you could read it as animal, the bear, the animal shirt, or you could read it as naked shirt no shirt on. Most likely it is the former, that it, it is, it is anim, bear, the animal shirt. But in fact, we never read of these warriors wearing such a shirt. So perhaps that's a much older uh, tradition about them that's more or less forgotten by the, uh, the time the sagas are written down. It is interesting to note that in some migration age artwork, we do see individuals closely associated with bears or wearing what appear to be animal skins, even specifically bear skins. So perhaps there's something to the origin of the berserker there. And it's notable how often heroes who are not called berserkers are associated with bears. In fact, the individual I was just talking about from the Saga of Kraki, both were Bjarki is a good example of that, as is Beowul, although neither of them is ever called a berserker. In the sagas, a berserker is in fact a a negative figure, at best, a neutral figure. The source of his power, says Snorri in his prosetta, is Odin. Odin gifts the berserker with the fury called the berserksgangr, going berserk, and also gifts him with uh, immunity from fire or from iron or possibly both, but it seems like it's just one. And the Berserker in most sagas is an enemy of our hero or protagonist. So, for example, in the saga of Egil Skallagrimsson, one of the most famous of the sagas of Isengers, Egil faces off with a Berserker who has come over from Sweden, wanders the Norwegian countryside, and is just a a bully challenges men to duels for their sisters or their daughters, and of course defeats all of them and ends up taking uh, their their sisters or daughters as as his concubines. And that's a pretty typical berserker character in, in one of our sagas. Angantyr and his brothers are a little bit on a grander scale than that, and Angantyr in particular owns a fantastic cursed sword called Tyrfinger, 
which is uh, made by dwarves, depending on which version of the Saga of Fairborn Haetheric, you get either a little bit of information about that or a lot of information about that. I could talk about that later too. Um, but when he dies, he's buried with it, and his daughter, Hervor, comes and uh, digs up his grave and finds his animated corpse within and exchanges a, a long poem with him about it before he gives the sword over to her. That's quite a, a, a motif, this notion of berserkers. And it's interesting you note the difference in sort of the grandeur that comes along with Angantyr and his 11 brothers, because we do see in other pieces of Old Norse literature, berserks as sort of these, you know, solo duelists who go around challenging men for their, you know, um, significant female family members and also their land and, and so forth. Tyrfing, the sword that Angantyr wields is a mythical sword. And, you know, we see this across medieval literature, also in the saga of the Volsungs, the mythical sword that Odin thrust into the tree Barnstock. Is there anything significant about these mythical swords? I mean, it, certainly it's straight out of, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien with regard to being forged by dwarves and its significance and so forth. And obviously that's just a testament to the fact Tolkien drew inspiration from Old Norse literature. But I'm curious, is there anything that we as readers should bear in mind about these types of swords? What do they tell us, if anything, or do they just embellish the story and make for an interesting tale? Well, it certainly is very compelling to me how a sword can be almost a character in and of itself. Indeed. And in fact, the saga of Hervor and Haetheric could really be called the saga of the sword Tyrving. It's the first thing that we hear about in chapter one. and aside from the very last two chapters of the saga, which in fairly typical saga faction, you know, go into the weeds about some people's ascendance, is there for every other scene and, and held by every other major character at some point. Um, it really is kind of the saga of, of this sword. It's from its forging to uh, the last generation that holds it. And uh, actually, different versions of the saga have uh, different amounts of information in, in the first chapter about how the sword was made. Our best manuscript of the saga of Herborn Haetheric does not have uh, a very long section about the creation of the sword Tyrvinger. So that's what's in my uh, the, the version of chapter one of the saga that's in the normal sequence of chapters in, in the book. But I print as an appendix a different version of chapter one from the manuscript known as Hoeksbok, which might not be based on as old of a tradition, but actually has a much more involved, longer story about how the sword is created by these dwarves, depending on which version he reads, a uh, king named Svavarlami or Sigalami, and how they cursed it because of the arrogant way that he treated them. And the specific curse on it, of course, is that. It must draw blood any time that it is drawn, and no one can uh, can be harmed by the sword without being killed. So it's a a lethal weapon that can never be just idly practiced with. And of course, this curse is major driver of the action and tragedies in the saga. 
At the beginning of today's show, I introduced our sponsor, Norse Tradesman. If you love the Viking Age as much as I do, go ahead and pay them a visit at norsetradesman.com or follow the link in this episode's description. Norse Tradesman offers an incredible array of Norse-inspired handcrafts, ranging from swords and axes to clothing, pendants, and drinking horns, all rooted in Norse history, mythology, and tradition. Plus, now Norse Tradesman offers custom hand-engraved horn tankards. Submit your own text to be engraved or even get your initials translated into a Norse bind rune by their in-house Norse linguistics expert, Dr. Cody Dees. The custom mugs make for incredible gifts for the heathens in your life. Imagine everyone in your horde with their very own personalized horn mug. Aside from offering great products, Norse Tradesman is passionate, just like I am on this podcast, about the rich history of medieval Scandinavia. Norse Tradesman's goal is to transport its patrons back to the enchanting times of our ancestors. Their products display the craftsmanship and authenticity of true Norse tradesmen that fashioned goods with incredible attention to detail. All of their craftsmen use traditional techniques to mimic the function and appearance of medieval Norse crafts. But most importantly, They do not forget the values of the culture that inspired the creation of Norse tradesmen. Honor is of the utmost importance with this company, and they certainly do not fail you when it comes to personal attention and customer service. As founder Neil Goldsmith has said, Norse tradesmen will never rest until their allies are pleased. So visit Norse Tradesmen at norsetradesmen.com or follow the link in this episode's description. Lose yourself in the magic of times long past by reliving the Viking Age through handcrafted products from Norse tradesmen. And Hervor, who obviously awakens Agantir's ghost in his grave mound, seeking this, this cursed and mythical sword, Tyrfing, could she be described as a sort of shield maiden, because I know, correct me if I'm wrong, but there is another character in Old Norse literature, unless it's the same one who's a Valkyrie called Hervor as well. Is that right? Uh, there's two characters named Hervor in this saga. There could be a Valkyrie named Hervor somewhere in one of the lists of Valkyrie names. I don't know off the top of my head. Certainly the term shield maiden occurs elsewhere, although Hervor is the She's really the ultimate example of the shield maiden in, in the sagas. Yeah, she, uh, she finds out who her dad was. She's actually been raised by her maternal grandfather and never told who her dad was. Once she finds out that it was Anguntur, she realizes that he must have been buried with this, this great sword, Tyrvinger, and, and decides that she will go and get it. So she disguises herself as a man, takes command of a Viking ship, and sails it to the island where he died and was buried, and digs up his grave. I use the term ghost. That is an okay term, but I'll, I'll point out that the type of undead that he is, the, the Norse Aftergaga, is much more physical than our kind of intangible idea of a ghost. He's much closer to a zombie or a uh, 
oh, uh, yes. non non predatory vampire. <laughs> um, he well maybe he's maybe he's predatory. And we don't see it, but he's a he's a physical thing in his own corpse. You know, it's it's remarkable how much the Norse and uh, and old literature really don't observe a body soul distinction. When someone dies, we hear that that he went to Valhol, right, or to hell. We don't. It's not his spirit went there. It seems like the person remains somewhat physically tied to their body, and you might wind up physically tied to a body that's still in a grave, or perhaps go in and out of your grave, as Helgi is said to do. And uh, the second poem about Hel- Helgi, killer of Hunding in the Poetiketa. So, Hervor, after exchanging uh, this long poem that we call the Waking of Angantyr with uh, with her her undead father Angantyr, takes a sword and uh, returns to her life as a Viking, um, in, still in disguise, before eventually returning to her maternal grandfather's kingdom and resuming a more normal life as a woman. But then her granddaughter, who will also be named Terabor, will be one of these shield maidens as well. And we are not told she uh, wears a disguise. She seems to be uh, openly a woman, but also a combatant. I see. That is interesting. And that is another topic which we've talked about at length on this podcast, the role of women during the Viking Age, women as they appear in Old Norse literature. A very hot topic in the year 2021 at the time of this recording. I know people are continuing, academics and public historians, to publish about the subject in you know, various regards. What do you, if I may ask, Dr. Crawford, if I may candidly ask, what do you make of something like this? I mean, whether this particular example of a shield maiden Viking female character that appears in the saga we're discussing today should be understood as sort of something that was just good, and I not with any disrespect, just good literature, good reading, adventurous, um, you know, embellished for the sake of storytelling and great oral tradition, or if this is evidence to a greater cultural worldview. One one might even say about the role or of women, or maybe not the role of women, but just the you know, the capabilities of women. Just what do you make of of this, Dr. Crawford? All right. Well, first of all, I'll put in my usual disclaimer that although I hope one day to be as cool as Indiana Jones, I am not an archaeologist. So (laughs) I I can look at archaeological evidence. I can be assisted in interpreting it by archaeologists, but it's really not my forte. And the reason I mentioned this up front is that, of course, part of what reignited this Shield Maiden dispute was the discovery that a major grave from Birka, Sweden, yes. that had for more than 100 years actually been known and, and always regarded as a, a warlord's grave because it contained weapons and a horse and various other accoutrements of a fighter, uh, turned out it was a woman. So this meant a, just a swirl of controversy over this, you know, was this a woman warrior or was this a woman buried with perhaps tributes from male relatives or is this some kind of a proxy burial or something like that? We, and we, of course we don't know. There's nothing written in the grave to to tell us any of this. And I understand that her bones are decomposed enough that we can't tell if they have 
say the the kind of stress fractures or injuries you might expect in an active fighter. So I don't, I don't, I'm not the person to uh, interpret that kind of evidence. On the literature side, uh, I'll point out something interesting. Uh, I, I think about the way shield maidens are talked about. Shield maidens, these warrior women, are a pretty, uh, pretty common thing in the mythical heroic sagas. So we have Hervor and then her granddaughter Hervor and the saga of Hervor and Hadric. There's even a Queen Olaf in uh, the saga of Rolf Kraki, the other saga in the book, who is a, a shield maiden. Guthrun in the saga of the Volsungs fights alongside her brothers during their last fight. Um, a couple others here and there. Even in the sagas of the Icenders, we find women who occasionally take up arms for a specific purpose. Um, the jilted uh, divorcee in the saga of uh, the people of Loxdale, for example, who who rides over to her ex-husband's house to injure him after he's divorced her. Okay, so it's it's not that unusual in literature, whatever the occurrence of these women in actual historical fact, which I don't I don't know about. But one thing that you don't see in this literature that I think is revealing in some ways by contrast is you don't see an equivalent transcendence of social class. So they're very willing to consider in literature that women might do things that aren't within the normal purview of women's activities, but they really never contemplate that someone born into a slave family might become a person of uh, great quality who needs to be respected. Um, anytime in the sagas that someone who is supposedly a slave is particularly beautiful or particularly able or intelligent or strong or whatever, uh, be that a man or a woman, it always turns out that that person actually is from a noble family and had been, you know, falsely sold into slavery or captured or something like that. So it's interesting that they seem to think of the, 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 their poets and saga writers seem to not be able to get over, even in literature, the idea that social class is pretty fixed and pretty unbreakable. But they seem to be able to contemplate, at least in literature, the notion that rules specified by sex might be breakable, that they might not be uh, completely ironclad. I think that's interesting. Um, it suggests at least some possibility that, that they could contemplate the idea of a warrior woman in, in the same way that they just wouldn't contemplate someone who was born, you know, to a Irish slave family actually being a smart, able man or beautiful woman. That is really interesting context and insight, Dr. Crawford. And I appreciate that you're speaking from a literary perspective. Archaeology is important. Certainly, we've interviewed many an archaeologist on this podcast to discuss topics such as that. I love the literary perspective as well. I think it's really insightful and great additional context for listeners to consume and consider. With regard to social class, and is there any way to tell, like do the sagas, do, does Old Norse literature even give us this 
the women who do end up being warriors and participating in combat, do they tend to come from a certain social class, i.e. the upper class, or is that not specified? Yeah, they're, they're nobles. Right. Every example that I can think of is, is a woman of, of noble birth. Now, that's not to say that you might not have women engaging in scuffles in lower classes, right? I mean, that kind of thing happens in the sagas. Someone is, is punched by a woman or something that, that happens. But if we're talking about these women who put on armor and, you know, joined Viking uh, raiders in their ships, these are, are women born to noble families. Very interesting indeed. Dr. Crawford, I've absolutely adored our conversation thus far. I've learned a great deal about your new book, Two Sagas of Mythical Heroes, Hervor and Hadric, and Hrolf Kraki and his champion, available for purchase via the link in the description of this episode. And listeners, I do hope you spend some time in the description of this episode and check out Dr. Crawford's new book. I have my copy and I know you won't be disappointed. Dr. Crawford, shifting gears a little bit, you've been very busy writing this book and I understand there were some roadblocks with regards to the global pandemic and so forth. But, you know, on a more, I mean, equally professional, but more personal level, your YouTube channel, which was around even before I started this podcast, continues to go from strength to strength. I mean, at this time, I think you have something like 180,000 subscribers. Absolutely remarkable and a testament to just this appetite for the Old Norse and the Viking worlds. I mean, topics such so niche, such as the ones discussed in your book, people are just absolutely flocking to. Tell us, if you would, about your own journey over, you know, the last year or so. I understand, you know, everybody's been facing some tribulations with regard to the pandemic, but you surged on ahead, continuing to produce content on your YouTube channel. How's everything been going? Yeah, it's been a different journey. I, of course, was a, a non-tenured faculty for a long time first at UCLA, then at Berkeley, and then at the University of Colorado, and had begun my YouTube channel while I was teaching at Berkeley in 2016. And just gradually over the years, YouTube went from a strange side project to being my main source of income, although that's actually through Patreon donations, not from ads or anything. And so... By late 2019, I was able to, to make the astonishing leap <laughs> of saying, you know, I make more money from putting videos up than I do from uh, teaching classes, you know, with, with no opportunities for a stable job in academia, any, any tenure track positions. I decided that I would kind of let go of what seemed like an increasingly antiquated ambition to, to get one of those very rare jobs and focus instead on something that I was growing, uh, uh, a field where I was really getting some rewards for my efforts, um, where I felt like I was really reaching people with better info than they could get uh, just about anywhere else. And I decided to stop teaching. So I left my, my teaching position at the University of Colorado uh, as of May 2020. And since then, so more than a year now, 
I have actually been supporting myself entirely off of uh, Patreon donations in support of my YouTube channel, uh, my books, um, consulting jobs. And then I've also, as of July, recorded the Norse mythology class for the great courses, which I think will be available around Thanksgiving. So that will also probably uh, help with this project some. Thanksgiving you know, of this year, if I may ask. 2021, yeah. 2021. How exciting. Didn't, didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, no, no. So, you know, there's a lot of things. It's strange because, of course, you know, I'm not a pioneer out there crossing the prairies in a Conestoga wagon. But, and, you know, there's certainly uh, probably fewer dangers to the kind of pioneering that I'm doing, although there are some. But it is kind of a pioneering position because I don't really know anyone else who has has tried to do what I'm doing live as a as a public internet educator um, and has been doing it for as long as I have. I, I have a couple friends who are kind of in similar positions. Um, so uh, for example, there's Simon Roper who has his his YouTube channel about old English and related subjects. Luke Ranieri uh, talks about Latin and Greek and related subjects. And they're kind of, uh, kind of in similar positions, although they came at it uh, later than I did. So I, I'm kind of, I, I feel like I'm possibly some kind of strange vanguard for something that might be a pretty normal thing for educators to do in say 10 years. Uh, but the path ahead of me is still pretty dark, right? I, I don't know always that there's going to be a, a place to put my feet there. Um, and of course, you know, there's, there's uncertainties with it. You don't know that uh, YouTube will last forever, right? You don't know that Patreon will last forever. Things are, are, uh, are, are just un unclear that way. But for now, it's working out okay. I am supporting myself. and. Um, it's nice to kind of be uh, my own boss and, and to reach as, as many people as I do, which it still kind of surprises me how many people that seems to be. <laughs> I'd say you are a pioneer, Dr. Crawford, and it's been so exciting and inspirational to follow your journey over the last few years. I started this podcast in 2018 with uh, absolutely no idea that it would grow to the scale that it is now. I mean, tens and tens of thousands of people tuning in every month and listeners, thank you so sincerely for the emails that you send and the messages via Twitter. I mean, those are the things that make my day. And to see that you're so excited about the topics we discuss on this show, as excited as I am, is so is just so cool to to use a very American term. Well, Dr. Crawford, I've told you this story before, I think, but I first became acquainted with your work actually many years ago when well many years ago you started in 2016 when i was actually assigned to read the saga of the volsungs at the uh, classical school that i was attending at the time as a high school student and i started my podcast later after that i was uh, we were reading the saga of the volsungs very unusual to be assigned that in an american school let alone a classical school but i had a very uh, unique and exciting uh, and fascinating literature teacher I think at the time, I want to say you did a three-part series on the Saga of the Volsungs. I consumed all of your videos, and I thought they were so cool. And I remembered your name, of course, 
when I went on to start a podcast about uh, the history of medieval Scandinavia years later. So I've been following your work for some time, and I love to see that you're doing well. And I think that through your platforms, YouTube and the like, you're reaching more people than you ever would through Electra Hall at a university, which is very cool to see. Oh, I know that I'm reaching more people. You know, it's just, of course, you're, you're not in such a different position here, right? I mean, we're both. Indeed. <laughs> uh, we're, we're both kind of riding this wave and not quite sure exactly where it goes. Sometimes I wonder if, you know, decades from now, we're going to be kind of old internet, right? I mean, it's, I, I sometimes think about how things, it seems like self-evident changes in the past really didn't seem like it at the time. I mean, when Thomas Edison electrified New York, no one knew that that was going to be the future. It could have just been a weird, you know, fluke. Maybe everybody was going to stick with gaslighting for the next hundred years. I, I'm not trying to compare myself to Thomas Edison, but I mean, I, I do wonder if if what you and I are doing is actually going to be a new normal, a new way that people approach education and subjects like this, um, not in a classroom, right? Because I mean, of course, the biggest difference between accessing your materials or my materials and accessing them in a classroom is we're not charging them tens of thousands of dollars. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, eventually the market figures out that there's a way to get this information without paying tens of thousands of dollars. So I'm I'm very curious on a meta level, even beyond my own fate this way, and and how, and uh, how education changes in the near future. And that's not just about subjects like Norse mythology and Vikings. I'm I'm talking about uh, on the whole. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and obviously, you know, your YouTube channel was very large. And I say your YouTube channel. I know you have other outputs, your consulting work, and your books, and so forth. But everything you were doing before the you know COVID nineteen and twenty twenty was going very well, and then that really was a big cultural shift. I personally, and also some members of my family, have been heavily involved in the homeschooling industry, a two point five billion dollar industry in the United States, and it is absolutely, um, I mean, it's it's crazy, it's unprecedented, the acceptance of that particular style of education and how people who had questioned it in the past and maybe still do are, and I'm not saying, you know, I'm not endorsing necessarily one type of education here. I think that's, um, should be measured on an individual basis. One must know themselves, but it, it's so crazy how accepting people are of that. And then I think when they see the work that you've put into educating yourself, obtaining a PhD and so forth, and they, they can get that on a personal level and for a low cost or no cost that is the key my friend yeah and of course i was you know uniquely positioned uh when covid changed uh so much of, of education for so many people uh it was a pure coincidence that i had decided in fall 2019 that that 2019 to 2020 was going to be my last semester of uh, traditional teaching so of course only a couple months after COVID hit, I had, you know, more time <laughs> to put into this. And, I, and of course, I already had a platform built up. I already had an audience. So I wasn't starting from scratch when the world kind of turned that way. I was, I was uniquely uh, ready for it. 
and I don't want to make it sound like I profiteered off of COVID. I didn't. Um, my Patreon say it about the same during that period, for example. But more like there was, you know, I mean, as they say, necessity is the mother of invention. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like people like you and me were were kind of ready with the invention when that necessity came. We were. We were. And because of, of popular demand, nonetheless. Well, Dr. Crawford, I will include links to certainly your new book. Again, two sagas of mythical heroes, Hervor and Hadric and Hrolf Kraki and his champion, as well as your other publications, the Saga of the Volsungs, along with Ragnar Lothbrook and the Poetic Edda, the Wanderers Havamal, all in the description of this episode, as well as your YouTube channel and your other excellent outputs. It's been a pleasure, Dr. Crawford, as always, having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me, my friend. Thank you very kindly, Noah. Thank you for listening to the History of Vikings. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't hesitate to get in touch. My email is noah at thehistoryofvikings.com. Thank you so much again for listening. Join us right here for another episode. 